In this episode, we're talking learning and iteration. But like our other conversations in this Blue Heart series, Alon shares insights that move our thinking way beyond any pop business psychology or oft-repeated phrases to practical, actionable intelligence that will help us both go to market and, once there, stay relevant and competitive. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and you're listening to a Razor's Edge podcast. I do a lot of speaking around the world, and I've got a, a magic trick that I do with my audience. I ask them the question, how many of you are entrepreneurs? Keep your hand up. And then I say to them, okay, now 100% of you are going to put down your hands on the following question. And if I'm wrong, keep your hand up. And the question is... Or the statement is, any of you who have got a business today, the product or service that you provide is not the same one you provided on day one when you opened. If I'm wrong, keep your hand up. If I'm right, put your hand down. And they all put their hand down. I've never been wrong. And then the question is why? And the answer is actually quite simple. The answer is that if they hadn't changed their product, in other words, listened to the market or iterated, they wouldn't be around six months later. Alon Raze has been assisting entrepreneurs for almost two decades. During this period, he and his team have accelerated the success of over 13,000 businesses. And a large part of this is because of their theory of change, which underpins almost all that they do. Find the best, give them the best, produce the best. In honing their ability to find the best, they have identified 27 things they look for in an entrepreneur. Right near the top of this list are six characteristics this series focuses on. During this fourth episode, we're asking the question, do you really know how to listen, learn, and convert that learning into competitive advantage? Now, why I use that example, because remember we're talking about characteristics of entrepreneurs, is very often entrepreneurs don't have the ability to listen and don't have the ability to listen to market. So there's two phases of listening that are quite sensitive. The beginning phase is when you come up with the idea and it's a brand new thing and it's got bells and whistles and it's never been done before and everyone around you is telling you you're an idiot and the product will never work. And you go to your wife or your husband and they tell you, and then you go to your colleagues at work and they tell you the same thing, and then you don't listen to them because they don't know what they're talking about, and then you go to your bank manager and he or she tells you the same thing and you don't listen to him or her, and then you go and make your MVP, as they call it today, minimal viable product, and you create something and then you go to market. And then the market tells you they don't like it. So this is where phase two comes in. Now, there are lots of fantastic stories about people who've been way ahead of the curve and then the market catches up to them and then they become heroes. But most people don't live through that educational phase. And so they disappear into obscurity. So to me, the first phase, which is listening to your friends and family and you know, the, the bank manager, etc., Maybe it's not that important to listen to them and listen rather to yourself. So take in maybe 10, 15% of what they're saying, listen and bring that in. But you are bringing something new to the market and the prevailing thought patterns out there will be congruent with what is already. 
So there'll be a bias in the way people think. And so if I were to advise an entrepreneur, I would say to them, in that phase, listen, adjust slightly, but take yourself more seriously in this phase. But when you go to market, the market is king. They determine whether they're going to purchase from you or not. Whether you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. They will purchase what they think is right. So if they say that thing is doesn't look good in pink and needs to be green with white dots, it, it needs to become green with white dots. And so now you're in a dilemma because in the second phase, which is when you're to market, now you don't want to now produce a product or service that is just like everyone else's, which is what the market is used to, but you also want to, to sell. So at this point in phase two, I would say that you're more around 70% listening to the market and 30% listening to yourself. Because if you take it the other way, if you don't listen to market, then you don't get the chance to even sit across the table and have the conversation. So rather listen to market and then convince the market slowly about a different way of thinking. Now, if you look at a lot of the so-called revolutionary products out there, and our classical one that we always speak about is Steve Jobs, who was such a, an incredible inventor, and we all know that the iPad was not his. It was actually designed in 1989. It was called the grid pad originally by somebody else and was completely unsuccessful because they hadn't listened to market. What Jobs had was an incredible way of combining what the market doesn't want and what the, the market does want into something new. And that was the real skill that I believe that he had because no one really wanted an iPad, but he made you believe you did want it and you couldn't live without an iPad. And yet that technology existed and the market didn't take it up. So there's this fine balance between the two. And I think the true geniuses are the ones that know how to do that, you know, combine those two. If you haven't already, go and grab a notebook and pen because Alon is about to challenge our thinking in the best possible way. The first phase, the, the build phase, the creation phase, is about, first of all, understanding what problem your solution solves or your product solves. And then retrofitting that in a classical two-by-two, two, an X and Y axis where all the competitive products and services might sit on that X and Y axis and labeling that X and Y. A classical one would be price and quality. So everyone sits in this quadrant and we sit in that quadrant. But then the way that most creation happens is when you start to see that two by two differently to everyone, that you compare your X and Y axes are not the way that the market normally sees the X and Y axis. You're now saying, well, it's about connectivity and price. It's about convenience and speed. You start to create your own two by twos in your head and start to then place your product in a different place there. Now you can fool yourself as to the fact that there is a market demand for that. And phase two, when you go to market, will give you a lot of that feedback. But in the beginning, if you know that your product or service is actually solving a problem and you understand your two by two clearly, then to me that's a great defensive 
way to actually withstand all the negative commentary that you're going to get from the people around you because they just don't understand your X, Y axis. I'll cite a personal example of this. When RaceCorp was in its early stages, we were very much into the sweat equity type of business. We would find entrepreneurs who we believed we could help. We didn't have funding, we didn't have cash, and so we offered sweat for equity with a guarantee that we'd need to have a hurdle rate of X amount of revenue or profitability for that equity to manifest. So that was our business. And then what happened was the corporate started approaching RaceCorp in order to do what we do for black-owned businesses, but they didn't want us to take equity in those businesses. They wanted us to just charge a fee. So I need to give you the context now. The context is the beginning of broad-based black economic empowerment. The companies that are doing this at the time or the organizations are predominantly NGOs or NPOs. And the way that they are doing this is that they are going to corporates and they were saying, give us a million rand and we will train. My model was slightly different. I went to the, the market and I said, let's act more like a university. Instead of going to put our hand out and ask for money in order to support black-owned businesses, let us sell bursaries, let us sell value and use a concept that exists in a different industry, which is the tertiary education industry or even the schooling industry, which is the concept of a bursary, and apply it in this context here. So in the beginning, when I would go out and even the partners that I had at the time would say, no one's going to buy that because no one understands that in, in this industry. And because I was very clear in my mind that there was an exchange of value, which was just like a university does. They sell a certain set of services in a given period of time for a certain amount of money. It was exactly the same thing. But our whole industry was not ready for that. They, they were used to just the NGO, just handing cash out way of doing things. So I got a huge amount of feedback initially from the people in the industry, you know, those people who were training entrepreneurs, that they were saying that this would never work. And in fact, were a little bit more um, cruel than that because the concept was, was not around at the time. This was product design and also conceptually how to sell that product, the, the packaging in how we sold the product. So no one in our industry had ever sold it in that way and no one ever consumed it in that way. So I had a double problem now is that, well, I was used to being told that I wouldn't be in existence in a year's time. I didn't take that too seriously because I was very clear on what I wanted to achieve out of this, the fact that it made sense to me. And now the next thing was to go and test that in the market, which I did. And I went into the market and they too said they didn't understand. And it was a bit of an education, but as soon as... I explained to them it was exactly what they were doing in their CSI for putting university students through university. Then they got it. It was actually a quick jump for them. And then they said, oh, oh, that's what you're doing. And they said, okay, we understand. How much is a bursary? And then I would sell them those bursaries. Now let's relate that to the two-by-two two that I was speaking about earlier. 
and it's quite an obscure two by two, but a two by two nonetheless. So on the one axis, we're going to talk about ways of payment. They either give it away or they buy. And then on the y-axis, you would have the amount that they would spend, which was small, moving to big amounts. What they were used to was giving away monies for BE purposes in small amounts to try and get uh, triple BE points. Where we moved the corporates to is that they had a problem that they needed to spend a huge amount of money in terms of the enterprise development spend at the time. So it was large and they didn't have a way to just give it away other than to put a million rand into somebody's bank account. And so what we did, did was by presenting them with an option to buy a bursary was allow them to then purchase many bursaries, i.e. spend big amounts of cash by buying these bursaries. And so we were the first company in that quadrant in South Africa at the time. And as a result, we were able to grow quite quickly in that space. And uh, that really is the sort of the understanding of the two by two. But now let's move one step further, which is now phase two, which is the level of listening that you require when you are in the market. So once you are in front of the client, then the client now understands a new concept and says that they want uh, it to have these features and these benefits to them. They've already bought the, the basic concept, but now want it modified to their needs. So you'll see that in most organizations where they go out and their first version of a product or service actually meets the basic needs of a client, and then it evolves uh, every every day, every week, every month, every season to meet the needs of, of the client. And you see that in in clear technicolor with your cell phone, which every year there or every two years is a brand new version of the iPhone 6, the iPhone 7, the iPhone 8, the iPhone 9, iPhone 10, and who knows what iPhone is going to be out whilst you are listening to this podcast. And so it completely iterates, and that's a function of not just the client, but also the competitive environment and the technological environment, what the other enablers are in the market. So the product then starts to evolve, and you now have to be listening to the market, to the competitors, to the technological and other enablers, in order then to improve your product to ensure that you are meeting uh, the needs of the market. And I want to add in a profitable way because one can go too far to iterate to an extent where it's not profitable and I always caution entrepreneurs who are in the process of iterating is that they still need to hold their margin sacred and ensure that they are, are iterating at a profit. Iteration for iteration's sake to the point where there is no more profit is effectively the commoditization of a product. And so your differentials become smaller and smaller to a point where there is no differential to the rest of the market. So to me, your iterations need to always hold enough space between them to ensure that they are distinguishable, but also ensuring that that's not at the cost of all your margin. 
I love his added caution about maintaining margin. What do I hear when he says this? The value of a product or service is never its price. There is more to learning and iteration than just listening though. Just ask any business leader that has made efforts to change or transform company culture. I think the next layer of thinking around iteration is a cultural layer, that that iteration becomes uh, a cultural way within your organization, that all your documents are version controlled, version 1.0, 1.1, 1.2, which gives the understanding that there will be another version to come. And if you look around RaceCorp as an example, every single one of our documents is version controlled with the date that the last version was changed. The culture within everything we do is around version control. And the subtext of that is that this is the best version of this right now, and there will be a new reality in the future. And when that reality presents, and it becomes significantly important for us to change this way, we will, and that's okay. Because what also is important is when you have an iterative mindset and an iterative approach, you let go of the past and make sure that your organization is far more relevant than it was yesterday. And so you're constantly keeping up as an organization and not becoming a dinosaur. And we see that with many organizations that find it very difficult to change as they get bigger and bigger. And if you have a culture of change, it's much easier to move and become agile in an environment right now where things are changing at such a huge rate. And you'll be surprised when you go to organizations, even small organizations, where I ask the question about when was this process designed? And they would say it was designed four or five years ago. And they say, well, is it still real? And then they look at you and they said, yes, it is real. And then you sit with them and you go through the process and you say, well, is this really still true? And not even nine times out of ten, nine and a half times out of ten, the answer is it's it's actually not relevant anymore, is that they just believe it is, but it's not. And so those organizations, if they have many, many of these processes in their organization, these become the basic anchors that hold them back and don't allow them to move forward. So you have to have this constant iteration of everything. And I think what's important is that you have trigger events which trigger an interrogation to whether or not a process is still relevant or not. So I'll give you a very simple example of that. Let's take a role description. Let's take somebody's job. That person is in their job for four or five years. What's happened in the last four or five years is definitely there's new software that they're using. There's definitely new processes that they're using. The organization around them has evolved to ensure that they are able to do a lot more than they did on day one when they started. And then that person leaves. It would be unthinkable for the new person to come into that same role description because it would not be true. The, the content of that role description would not be even close to what the person who has, who has just left was doing at the time that they left. And yet most organizations just hand over the, the role description that was for that administrator back to this individual, and then they get this really out-of-date job description or role description. If you think about that, every time somebody leaves, every time a certain trigger event happens, and that will be bespoke to your type of 
industry, you need to create these these trigger events and, and label them that when this happens, then we relook at process. And you look for its relevance, particularly around the new technologies that might exist, other interrelated processes that might have changed. I'll give you another example of that. If I look at our selection team, we were creating reports in terms of how many people were applying, where they were in their process on any given day. At the time that this role was created, the individual would spend half a day creating a report for the whole department. So one person was taking half a day to create a report about what happened on that day or the previous day. At the same time, we were automating, and a huge amount of that then moved into basically technology. And it moved to a point where it would take three minutes to produce that report, and now that report is completely automated. So if you look at that administrator's role in that department, it went from literally half their time to zero. So that whole part of their job has disappeared because of automation. So when that person left, the new person's role was completely different to that person. So part of the the culture of iteration is to ensure that you have built-in triggers all over the organization to reinforce your iteration, that it's happening all the time by process and not just uh, by luck. But what about the other side of the human in all of this? How do we iterate towards competitiveness, efficiency, and value generation if we have employees that fear change and are reluctant to let go of the parts of their jobs they believe keep them secure? To me, the way that I speak to my team and particularly to my leadership is that they need to be obsessed about making themselves redundant. And that is not about their real redundancy. It's a redundancy within their role. Because one of two things is going to happen. Firstly, the market is going to make them redundant anyway or make us redundant and therefore them redundant. And if they become then redundant, if they have basically expressed all their value into process, it allows them to move and evolve. So think about an organization where you've got an individual who knows everything about a particular thing. And they are a good person, but they're a little threatened by the fact that if they let go of that, then they might not have a job. And many people are in that state. But here's the other side of that coin, is that for as long as they are important there, then every single other opportunity for them to grow, to actually evolve to the next level, will not be presented to them because they're weight-bearing in that environment and that they can't move them because they're the only ones who know how to do that. Until some seismic event happens in the organization and that thing no longer is required, and then they not only lose their job, but they have no other place to go because that's all they could do. So to me, if you've got a mature a workforce and a leadership that can express that and actually manifest that in, in the organization where you see people evolving by letting go. You have an organization that's constantly evolving and more flexible where people are able to move into new roles. And that's happening here in RaceCorp all the time is that people are moving from one role to the other. And, you know, we're not perfect. We've got individuals who are these weight-bearing people who cannot and do not want to be moved. And quite frankly, we've had those discussions with them. And one day, as that 
that role becomes non-necessary, these people are shooting themselves in the foot and they will become part of the collateral damage of change. The final point Alon raises is a really interesting one. In order to get the most out of this last insight, I believe the following questions will allow us to listen and hear with maximum impact. Please hold the following in your mind as we conclude this episode. How do I know if I'm a weak listener? What are the signs that my organization struggles to learn and iterate? And what do I do if I see or at the very least suspect there is room to improve, but I just can't get my arms around it? What I spoke about earlier was the fact that you need to be testing the market, testing your competition and testing the enablers in the market to see what's evolving all the time and bringing that information back into your iteration. By definition, if you are 100% aware of all that those are, then there are no cataclysmic events that should not be anticipated. And, and if there are, you're far more buffered because you're far closer to being, let's call it evolution-ready than your competition. So I just wanted to put that in because that's an important point that I'm trying to make is that you keep close to what's going on. You're not so far from all these new potential threats and opportunities that will present as industries evolve and society evolves and competition evolves and technology evolves because you're evolving alongside or with it or in front of it or slightly behind it. But in the event that you're trying to solve a problem, that problem means that there is a dissonance between the way that you've read the market and where you are because otherwise you would have closed that gap already. So now you have to close that gap to now solve for what the market demands right now. So then it's about understanding that very, very clearly in terms of what is it that the market wants, what are the enablers, what is the competitive environment, and where are we right now? What is the gap? And very often what happens is that our lens is actually biased. It's a biased lens because we're seeing the problem from our perspective the whole time and not from a different perspective. So I would say that the most important thing you can do is get somebody from outside in that environment that you trust that can see your problem from a different way because you've got too much bias in your lens that will prevent you from seeing what is really happening. So often what I do in those situations is get a third party without any shame because you can't see everything and say, what am I missing here? But also being able to listen to to the answer. And like everything you will take in, you'll listen, you'll take in the perspective and it will add to your lens of where you need to, to go in order to close that gap. But I think the important thing, I mean, it's quite cliche that you have to know the gap and then close the gap with everything you have. But I think the important point that I'm making here is that your perspective is already tarnished because it comes from your perspective only. And if you've, that gap is already that far, there's another perspective that is probably closer to the truth. In a fast-moving and rapidly changing world, it is no longer enough to be a so-called lifelong learner. This might have been what you initially thought this podcast was all about. Instead, our mindsets need to shift from continuous development to continuous competitiveness. 
this changing of gears will yield significantly better results over the long term. Alon doesn't believe in business plans. His approach is much more lean and practical in nature, which is one of the reasons his business has outlived its competitors. If we are to remain relevant and competitive ourselves, we're going to have to make that same shift. This Blue Heart podcast series and those that follow offer the tools to do just this. In the next episode, we talk curiosity and all that this characteristic offers. If that conversation is anything like these first four, it is one not to be missed. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and it has been a pleasure.